This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. Good afternoon and welcome to Sweet 212, a show that puts the arts in a social, cultural and political context here on London's Resonance 104.4 FM. Freedom, the anthropologist Anna Lohenhout Singh writes, is in the negotiation of ghosts in a haunted landscape. It does not exercise the haunting, but works to survive and negotiate it with flair. To try and do that today, I'm joined in the studio by the writer and editor Jessica J. Lee, who holds a PhD in environmental history and aesthetics, is writer in residence at the Leibniz Institute at, uh, of Freshwater Ecology and Inland Fisheries in, Germ- in Berlin, Germany, yeah. uh, and works with the Alliance for Freshwater Life. Her first book, Turning, Lessons from Swimming Berlin's Lakes, published by Virago Books in 2017 and reissued in paperback this year, was one of Die Zeit's Zeit's, uh, best books of 2017. She also founded and edits the Willeherb Review, a literary journal dedicated to diversity in nature writing, which will publish emerging and established writers of colour. We're going to try to discuss all of that more or less in order, uh, probably it won't work out like that and end uh, with a reminder that the Willowherb Review are about to open a special submission uh, as part of a project um, called the People's Forest next year uh, looking for four writers of colour to write the seasons in Epping Forest uh, London's urban woodland I had to say that then so when I say it at the end it's a reminder rather than just me telling it for the first time Hello, Jessica. Hello. Thanks very much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Uh, very pleased to be able to catch you sort of just passing through London as you, you live in Berlin, but have lived in Toronto uh, and in London, among other places. So what's changed about London since last time you were here? Oh, gosh. I feel like, I mean, I'm here every few months, but the last, uh, I last lived here probably about four years ago, I would say. It is always changing enormously. I walk around and it's not just new restaurants or new cafes it's also just a feeling of everything is so fast here Mm. I find it really I mean that's partly why I left I couldn't keep up anymore um so yeah a lot has changed it always feels like there's something new and I don't know what the cool things are anymore but sweet to best stuff yeah and and the best (laughs) stuff I think it doesn't change you know that's what I love yeah you know the forests the heath the, the ladies pond all of those things they don't change and I love that well, that's a, a nice segue into the fact that when, um, actually, I think I understand you actually wrote it when you were away, but you're, the subject of your PhD thesis was the history and culture of a political, a particular, sorry, uh, well, and a political, uh, wild space here in London, which you just mentioned, the ponds of Hampstead Heath. I mean, you talk about that in uh, turning the book that we're going to discuss a bit later on. Uh, but as you finished the PhD first, I wondered if it might be a, an interesting way into it. Um, could you explain what you looked at in the PhD and why you're interested in Hampstead Heath? Yeah, I mean, I think I came to the subject originally. Um, I did my master's here in London uh, about, oh my goodness, was it maybe 10 years ago? That sounds scary to say. Um, and I was very luckily living in a flat right next to the Heath, and I completely fell in love with the place. And when I decided to do a, a PhD a few years later, I um, I ended up leaving the city, and I felt very, very, very sad about it. And so the the Heath sort of stuck to me as a subject that I could write about that would bring me back here and mm. keep me feeling connected because I hadn't wanted to leave. Um, so I sort of wrote it half here. I was coming back and forth between here and Toronto, and then eventually between here and Berlin. And it was uh, the idea was to look at the ways in which I think non-human nature and human nature sort of have collaborated in co-constructing this landscape that it's not strictly a cultural landscape that um you know there was a sense of i think powers beyond our scope um sort of informing how the landscape uh, took took place and took shape but also to really understand i i think those interconnections between sort of our cultural intentions um, and the way we've artistically looked at places like the Heath and how those are not really separate from the way we shape our environments even today. So it was looking, you know, from the 18th century to the present, looking at how public spaces like that are uh, managed from an aesthetic standpoint, from a conservation standpoint. Mm. It was a very broad sort of uh, take, but it was a way of looking at the Heath, I think, you know, by looking at more than just what painters have had to say or what poets have had to say, but by looking, you know, at 
I did a lot of research into the way cattle were used for clay puddling to create ponds at Kenwood House. And really, What's clay puddling? Clay puddling. It's like a method of creating ponds that was really common between the sort of 16th and 18th centuries. Um, I'm sure there's a historian out there who will, uh, you know, <laughs> tell me off for this because I might get a fact wrong. But um, basically, you use cattle um, or sometimes sheep. Different animals are said to be better depending on the shape of their hooves to pack the clay into a hard surface yeah. so that it becomes watertight. Yeah. Um, so I, I loved the idea of this sort of human-animal collaboration and the creation of something that is now a scenic fixture. So they're sort of like livestock as steamroller. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I, it was a lot of stories like that which were quite interesting, uh, interwoven with... Uh, contemporary stories on the heath so I, I spoke to winter swimmers at the ladies pond and okay. I swam with them for a winter and I worked with the um, sort of horticulture and landscape management volunteers who mm. you know build dead hedges to keep to keep things in order and a lot of that plus a lot of archival research yeah what was sort of like I was kind of uh, what we what documents were you looking at was it sort of the literature of the of the of the heath or or the, the, like kind of the governmental records of how it was administered or all of the above i think i mean this is the fun thing i like about maybe being a humanities scholar is i i feel sometimes like i can take anything as as material to work with um but for the phd it was you know i would look at old paintings just to get i mean sometimes that was the only way to date certain features on a site if you mm. don't have records um, I spent a lot of time in the parliamentary archives looking mm. at um, the legal documents that enabled the Heath to be transferred to the public. Mm. When was um, that done? Uh, in 1871. Okay. Uh, but it was, you know, after decades and decades of campaigning, that mm. first, the efforts first started in around the 1820s. So it took quite a lot of time. And before that, it was private space? Um, it, it was uh, managed land, um, you know, as held as part of an estate. And actually... To speak, the one we speak about Hampstead Heath now, we speak about obviously what we know as managed by the City of London. But mm. the, there were different landowners for different sections, and each of those sections were added at different time periods. Mm. So, um, I mean, it's it's hard to say exactly one answer for each of these things. But <laughs> East Heath, which was the first part to be secured, um, was uh, held by one particular family um, until uh, eventually it was managed to be secured and securely purchased for the public. Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to, do you think you'll get a chance to get, get to swim in while you're I've while already you're had it. Oh, yeah. Wow. I went swimming yesterday. <laughs> it was really, really beautiful. I had a, about 10 minutes of blue sky and sun. Oh. So it was really lovely. Yeah. Cause it's actually, it's, <laughs> you don't really get this effect on the radio, but uh, <laughs> for people listening again later or in, in places other than currently London, it's quite warm at the moment. Right? Yeah, it's I mean, the air has been, what, 10, 12 degrees. Yeah. The water yesterday was seven and a half degrees, which I think most people would think is quite cold. But I've just come from Berlin where we've had ice already on the lakes. Oh, wow. So um, I got in and thought, oh, this is actually kind of luxurious and I had to really disciplined myself not to stay in for too long because uh, I felt I felt warm <laughs> <laughs> well that's probably I think that's it's a very nice point to, to move over to um, to the book to to turning um, which I don't know maybe should we should we start with a with a, an extract from it and then we can sort of introduce it better or should sure. we yeah okay yeah. so okay. so I'm gonna read this from the second chapter of the book and I'll just read a few pages there's a bay in central Ontario two hours north of Toronto, in the heart of Canada's cottage country. It's a place of rock, water, and vast expanse. I swim there whenever I'm back in Canada, but for most of my childhood, I wouldn't swim in it at all. The depth and the darkness of the water kept me on the shore, terrified. The tangle of water milfoil in the shallows, to my mind, was a danger. Grasping hands of waterweed, clutching at my legs. It wasn't a place for swimming. But it was the land my parents chose. Both immigrants to Canada, they set about approximating the ideal life. My father arrived in the early 1970s, carrying $20 in his pocket. He'd left school in Wales at 16, set off across Europe doing odd jobs until he boarded his first Boeing 747. He arrived to a tangle of Canadian suburban houses in need of renovation, so he became a travelling salesman, replacing ageing clapboard and glass up and down the province. Within a decade, he was running his own business, hiring other salesmen like him. My mother arrived at 20 in 1974, speaking English only in fragments. Her credits from Secretarial College in Taiwan weren't recognized in Canada, 
so she was sent to complete grade 12 at her local high school. She spent that year out of place and longing for home. And then she married my father, an anchor in a foreign land. By the 1980s, our family was living in the Canadian suburbs, learning to be Canadian. My sister Nika and I were enrolled in primary school on weekdays, Chinese school on weekends, ice skating lessons, summer camp, ballet. We moved from one suburb to a nicer one. My father designed the logo for his home renovations business, a maple leaf to dot the eye. We were sent for swimming lessons at the YMCA because swimming lessons seemed essential in a land full of water. Neither of my parents could swim. Like my mother, we spoke Mandarin at first, but in time, the words disappeared. We spoke only English at home. In school, they taught us French. Now, halfway across the world, as I've learned to speak German, I think of this, of the language I lost and those I've gained, of the places that have reshaped who I am and where I find home. I remember the sound of my mother walking through the door at the end of the day. One of the refrains in Mandarin that she repeated, as if speaking to no one. I've always thought it meant, I'm home, but I've learned that it means only I'm back or I've returned. But hui, return, the small box tucked safely within another box, is a kind of comfort. The origin of the character is in a spiral, referring to a kind of regularity, the rotation of coming and going. Home is the place you return to. From time to time, the words take, place, take shape in my mouth when I walk through my apartment door in Berlin, a kind of routine the same way the patch of shoreline from which I swim represents safety. Fragments of Chinese slipping out between English and German as I press new words and new places into place. Return. Home is as much in a language as it is in a landscape. The German word Landschaft implies a cultural landscape. It's built into the very idea to speak about landscape in Germany is to speak about a place shaped by people, and given the past century's history, it hasn't always been easy to speak about. But agricultural fields, the rom romanticized places of forest and hillside, the many-storied rivers that traverse the country, all of these are cultural, on some level, shaped by and shaping culture. The name Berlin, so the story goes, stems from an old Slavic word for swamp, hardly an attractive beginning but it is an accurate name nonetheless. Berlin is built on wet ground. The Spree and Havel rivers slide across the city, damp cobbles edge the canals, groundwater rises from the sandy soil. A ring of water surrounds Berlin, a speckled landscape of lakes. Fresh water rushes into former sand quarries, moorland slopes into marshland, rivers slip and swell across the flat ground. Brandenburg surrounds Berlin, a countryside at odds with the city it's the place I least expected to love. Berliners joke about Brandenburg. It's poverty, it's backwardness, it's bigotry, they say. They ask if I've been given a hard time by neo-Nazis. They warn me that I'll have to improve my German skills if I'm to make it. And all of this holds a grain of truth. But before any of that, I knew it for its water. To leave the city, to swim, you need to know Brandenburg. It's a place of summer afternoons, holiday homes, and forest trails. It's a place where silviculture thrives, where people farm and people live. It's a place that made me stronger. Thank you. Um, wonderful. Um, the so the, the kind of the, the structure of the book is um, is about you making yourself a list of, of lakes that you're going to you're going to swim, and there are, there are fifty two, and uh, so the the structure sort of follows in the, in that uh, in that vein, and also I really liked that, them what you picked up on that in there, choosing that passage, this kind of connection between language and landscape, which I suppose is always at the the heart of nature writing because they're the, sort of the two constituent parts. And I have to admit, I didn't I didn't know the word limnology before, <laughs> like uh, which is the study of lakes, right? But mm -hmm. the, there's a there's a, a section also you, you talk about um that really stuck in my mind where you talk about um first encountering the word limnology as i did in your book uh, where did where did you first read that um i think i would have come across it while i was just reading uh, a bunch of sort of introductions to lake science because i'm the kind of person that if i if i want to write about something i do a lot of research mm. <laughs> yeah um but but in one of the passages where you talk about sort of uh, coming across it, you say that initially you'd thought, oh, that must be like liminal. Like it must be this kind of... Uh, Border space. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, 
and you kind of like talk like and so lakes kind of become that that for you i think yeah i mean i think actually the words aren't related but what i loved the most was that um there are sort of through how do i put it through the sort of mental acrobatics of being a person who speaks many languages i was always able to find connections so um in uh you know in the idea of of limni the word that we have for for border that we take you know uh, liminal from mm. i was able to find um connections in in german words to the idea of water mm. and thresholds and borders and mm. for me there was just this wonderful interconnection and it's sort of they're false they're false cognates they're not mm. the same um but i loved the play with language and mm. i think this was i mean it was it's part of the great pleasure of swimming in new places for me because it's a way of connecting to new places and connecting to new languages and just sort of finding myself caught between all the time and not mm. wanting to make a decision not wanting to say I need to think about this completely accurately because this is the root of a word and this is the language I'm speaking, but rather to say, I hear this word in one language and it reminds me of this other one. And mm. as a person who moves or, who moves a lot and comes from a migration background, being caught between places and being able to sort of have that sense of inconclusiveness, I think mm. is a great a great joy in language. Yeah, because I think there's another, there's another bit where you're talking about the sort of early lake scientists and the Lac Leman. Uh, the in Geneva, yeah, kind of like a yeah, connection between Leman and and limnology is is really lovely. Yeah, there, I mean, it's just such an exciting sort of uh, field to play with. I'm d I've been working on it still, and I just find it really, I find it really fascinating. And to think, you know, limnology is the study of freshwater, but the root, uh, the root word uh, limni in from the Greek actually means lake. Mm. So lakes as this sort of core, um, sort of ur understanding, ur myth of of what we understand by freshwater, right? Mm. Like it's obviously, it's much more extensive than that, but I love the idea of, I don't know, lakes as the platonic ideal of something, <laughs> you know? It's it's quite moving to me because I think lakes are so important to me. Yeah, well, there's, there's a whole sort of mythology and, I mean, you, you kind of, you talk a little bit about kind of like Wordsworth, but um, saying you'd previously you know, been more interested in Dorothy Wordsworth, but then the kind of a little bit of, <laughs> of, of, uh, of with William was interesting on, on that. Um, <laughs> Right at the beginning, I quoted that uh, that uh, Anna Lohenhout Ting line, um, and because it's a really wonderful line, uh, just to remind listeners of it, it's freedom is the negotiation of ghosts on a haunted landscape. It does not exercise the haunting that works to survive and negotiate it with flair. I'm actually quoting yourself back at you there because you <laughs> you quoted uh, um, about sort of uh, in about two thirds th the way through the book, and uh, it comes from. Uh, it sings The Mushroom at the End of the World on the Possibility of Life in Capitalist, Ru Capitalist Ruins, which was published in 2015. Uh, and one of the reasons it really sort of stuck in my mind is um, a couple of shows ago, we talked a lot about Ursula K. Le Guin. And uh, there's a, she gave a really sort of nice um, blurb for that, which I kind of slightly self-indulgently wanted to read from. <laughs> but I think it, it also kind of like it um, connects to some of the things we're talking about quite a lot. Um, she writes, um, because, and also the fact that, that you, I think kind of approach a lot of these these themes um, through a lot more, more of a sort of scientific kind of, uh, you have that sort of in your, your kind of repertoire the kind once of like, an academic always an academic yeah. it doesn't go away yeah. um which is kind of yeah i don't know it's slightly kind of unusual um for some landscape writing i think but anyway i'm going to do the Le Guin quote and then we can come back to it um she says scientists and artists know that the way to handle an immense topic is often through close attention to a small aspect of it revealing the whole through the part in the shape of a finch's beak we can see all of evolution so through close indeed loving attention to a certain fascinating mushroom the Matu matutake uh, anna lonehout singh discusses how the whole immense crisis of ecology came about and why it continues critical of simple reductionism she offers clear analysis in place of panicked reaction considers uh possibilities of rational humane uh, resourceful behavior in a situation where urgency and enormity can overwhelm the mind she gives us a real way to think about it uh i'm very grateful to have this book as a guide through the coming years um how did the, the same book sort of help help you in the i think i mean so I, I the reason i was reading the book originally and came across it i think like everyone working in humanities and social sciences basically in the past decade is 
Yeah, so Singh's work is quite popular. And um, I was working on my PhD. Mm. And so I was reading it because it was an essential source. Uh, but yeah, I think for me, it was one of those strange moments where as a writer, her style really just sort of opened something for me. And so it was really it was really refreshing to be able to read this kind of academic writing that also was so narrative and so immersive and also so personal in a lot of ways. Um, but also just this idea of sort of honing in on this one one piece of an environment and having that really help me think think through my role and my interaction with that space, but also, I don't know, to really just sort of see the wider place in, in that small thing. So for me, you know, for, for, for Anna Singh, it's, it's mushrooms. Um, and for me, I think throughout this book, uh, it was very much lakes, you know, lakes as a mirror, lakes as this, you know, getting to know one small place through a swim, it always felt for me like an intimate way of connecting with the fact that I was living in a new country, mm. you know, and I, I was sort of grappling with so much in that transition. Mm. It was like some of the other sort of texts, which, because you, you, you give a really interesting reading list at the, at the end, and, and one of the, the sort the people you keep, uh, you, you re return to, uh, partly more specifically because of the geography of where you're looking at is Theodore Fontane. Yeah, um, Fontana, yeah. Yeah, could you, I think he's probably less, less well known yeah, I to, mean, at least to our listeners, so. Yeah, I think, um, I had never read any of Theodor Fontana's work before I moved to Germany. Um, and I think really only people who are really big European literature buffs or who read a lot of work in translation and are focused on German literature really will have read much of Fontana's work. Um, but I came to it because he, he was based in and around Berlin and sort of in the years just as German um, Germany was really industrializing, which happened a little bit late than it did in later than it did in Britain. He wrote a series of sort of travelogues and nature musings and sort of explorations of the region that he'd grown up in, which is the countryside around Berlin. Mm. Um, because, and I, I quote this in the book, you know, he felt that he needed to do it before some foreigner did. Mm. And I thought it was always quite funny because... Um, you know, it was he had been traveling in, in England and Scotland and came to the idea because of the great sort of real sense of place writing in the tradition in English writing. Mm. And that was something that he, he took away and he thought, we don't, re we don't really do this in Germany. And so he, he wrote this piece. And um, it's actually not even that well known in German. It's very well known if you live in Berlin or the countryside around it. You can, you know, you can go on special walks that are uh, framed around this, this piece of writing that he did. Uh, which is called The Rambles Through the March of Brandenburg. Um, but it's never been translated. And I came across it and I thought, well, I guess I have to read it. <laughs> so I read it in German and my German was not very good at the time. But it was just this wonderful way of thinking about continuity and about the things that maybe haven't changed, especially, you know, he, he wrote it sort of in the late 19th century. Mm. And then we all know what happened in the 20th century mm. in this part of the world. So it was a way of thinking about landscape and change and yeah continuity I think so for me it was you know a really great insight into the place maybe before so much changed yeah, because that's uh, really one of the that's one of the things that the reviewers picked up on as well sort of like the the traces of history that kind of in going to in going to the lakes that you kind of like come across and yeah they bubble up even yeah. when we don't expect it and it's just a matter of I think sort of tuning into it and being able to see it and being willing to see it and to mm. hold it sometimes because some, it's not always nice, right? Like, yeah. Especially in, in that region of Germany, sometimes you come across things that are quite heartbreaking yeah. and quite challenging. And so, yeah. I suppose that's something that kind of, it's a sort of half-formed thought that maybe you can help me with. Um, but the, on that sort of question of, of freedom that, um, that is in the Ting quote, uh, about whether or not being in <laughs> swimming in a lake is is a sort of temporary freedom from landscape almost and the, like if you, you're kind of taking yourself out of the landscape but I don't know maybe you're not I always like to think of it as taking myself most truly into the landscape mm. um, maybe I, I don't know there's something about water that is so sensory and obviously so immersive that mm. it makes me feel I don't know it's like the best way mm. to really feel in touch with a place um because it literally soaks in through your skin. Yeah. Um, 
but I don't know. There is also that moment of escape, right? You yeah. leave sort of. You know, we we always talk about like going for a swim and leaving all your worries on the shore. Yeah. And especially because I swim all year round and swim in the cold, there's that sort of wonderfully blasting quality of, mm. of temperature in terms of just, I don't know, wiping away a lot of sorrow or pain. Mm. Um, so it's sort of all of those things at once. Mm. I think it's it's a way of sort of getting rid of all your own personal nonsense mm. while also getting really close to a particular place. Mm. Um, so I, I guess some people frame it for me as, you know, it's it's like doing, I don't know, like mind body, like mindfulness me meditation or something. It's, it, mm. it is a way of putting yourself most truly in your body in the middle of a place and getting out of your head, I think. Mm. I did, I did sort of one of the things I noticed, the kind of repeated sort of motif is like the way that you describe folding your clothes just before you're going in. It's quite kind of... <laughs> it's That for me is like a real act of ritual is folding my clothes before going swimming because, I mean, it's because in the winter if it's really, really cold and you can't feel your fingers, the last thing you want to be, do like, uh, be doing is like looking for your underwear or something <laughs> that's a nightmare while you're like shivering and freezing in the snow. Um, but yeah, folding my clothes. And that was a discipline that was sort of uh, instilled in me by the women at the ladies' pond oh, right. here on the Heath. They taught me everything I know. So, <laughs> yeah. That's good. <laughs> um, I suppose uh, just on the, we've kind of happily mo mo sort of uh, moved on from there, but also the another, just on the, the subject of kind of um, literary backdrops, um, Another sort of writer you talk about being behind slightly is Margaret Atwood, and I wondered if you wanted to talk a bit about that. Or? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I know Margaret Atwood is very trendy um, all the time, especially in the past few years. Um, I really saw this book as being in con con conversation with one of Margaret Atwood's older books, which is not actually that popular or that well known. Um, it was her second book, Surfacing, mm. which is a very short novel about a woman who is really struggling with her, I guess, her role in society and in her own life as, as a woman. And um, she goes into uh, the sort of north of Canada where she's from to go search for her father who has gone missing. And uh, it really plays with this idea of, of sort of a woman in nature, a woman alone in nature and what that means. And I think the book sort of troubled me in a way because it poses this question of, I guess, maybe the opposition between wilderness and civilization mm. and of women in nature. I don't know. I think we have a lot of tropes in our literature and in society about women sort of needing to sort of leave, leave everything behind, to cast everything away, to go on great adventures in nature, to feel connected and to you know quote unquote find themselves mm. and we we have a lot of these books you know where women it's about a woman like sort of eschewing everything in her daily life and that's the only way to find freedom or sort of come back to herself and a connection mm. with with the landscape and i found that really troubling um mm. because first off i'd have never wanted to walk away from my life i think my life i don't know it's challenging but i i don't see it as this cumbersome thing but also i wanted to i guess i just wanted to really play with the question of of how I could feel connected to the wider world and the environment and to nature without actually walking away from living in the middle of the city mm. you know they're not they're not sort of um uh, discontinuous things right it's not like I'm you know I'm in London and then the nature is I don't know somewhere out you know in Buckinghamshire you know it's mm. not like it's not like that right we mm. we all know that there's there's a deep interweaving between sort of the city and nature and, and you know, nature is everything, really. Mm. Um, so for me, it was really important to be able to say that I could hold all of these things at once. And, and the idea that women should have to make a choice, you know, that mm. it's like you either become, I don't know, like a mother and do the following things on a checklist or you become a woman who does none of that. Like I, I was really troubled by this forcing of choice. And um, so Atwood's novel was a really great exploration of that for me. Mm. It was so rooted in the landscape and I think because it's, you know, it's from my home country, I think there was a lot of, I guess, symbolism in, in that landscape for me um, and this sense of terror in the lakes that, you know, her character feels uh, on a certain level. It's like she feels at home, but she also confronts so much sort of terrible stuff uh, mm. in the lakes. And I think, I don't know, I, I really identified with that. I was terrified of lakes in Canada when I was growing up and then you know to sort of fall so in love with them later in life 
it was yeah. I was I'm just I'm one of those people who has a lot of questions maybe but not a lot of answers I, I like that kind of play yeah yeah I think that's uh, <laughs> and indeed I have lots of questions I'm trying to think of which ones which ones to ask in which order um, it doesn't quite uh, I think actually that would be a really nice point to talk about what you're working on next uh, but before we go there it's something that um, struck me um, repeatedly in the book is sort of the way that you you, na you navigate to, to the lakes and you, you go on again and again about thinking oh, I need to get a paper map and then and then deciding not to <laughs> but there seems kind of uh, and I suppose this is this, it's kind of relevant to the Atwood thing because it, it's certainly something that has changed since since Atwood's book uh, that you that your navigation to and from these lakes is always by kind of smartphone map. Mm -hmm. And it's something that you return to again and again, like the screen of the, the smartphone and the, 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 the surface of the water. And uh, do, you, <laughs> do you still, is that still how you navigate them? Or? It is still. And I think it was, I really felt strongly about writing that into the book because first off, I think we have a lot of stereotypes about who, I don't know, who a person who is in nature is mm. um, and who a nature writer is. And like, Okay, I do own a wax coat, I should confess. I don't always wear it. I don't have a dog. I don't wear wellies. I'm not like an old British man in a flat cap. That would be a really interesting look. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't walk around with ordnance survey maps all the time. Um, I find them interesting from an academic standpoint, but, I, you know, that's not always the most practical thing for me. I'm, I'm a millennial, you know. I have an iPhone. Oh. I, I'm going to take it with me, and I'm probably going to Instagram what I'm doing. It sounds mm. bad. But... I really didn't want to deny that part of myself because I thought I had to fit some mold of what a nature writer should be. Mm. Um, so yeah, I I take my smartphone with me, and it always runs out of battery. It's a nightmare. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think I still I still get around that way, and um, I don't know. It's actually kind of important to me now. It, yeah. It's like not to pretend that I'm something I'm not. Yeah. I'm I'm a young woman, you know, who likes technology and. I don't see those things as, um, I don't know, mutually exclusive. Mm. You know, it doesn't mean to say, like, yes, I have a smartphone and I, you know, I use social media and also I like to go on multi-day treks mm. in nature and jump into frozen lakes. You know, I think we can be all of those things. Yeah, because on the kind of the social media thing, because I think the uh, some of the original writing for this book came from... Uh, sort of blogging yeah, yeah yeah I started it because I um I was blogging and the blog did pretty well and I had the opportunity to write a book so yeah yeah um I think you know that's that's the world we live in now mm. and to act like that's not the case I think would be really strange mm. um so yeah I don't know I, I think it's just most honest to I don't know admit to using google maps <laughs> <laughs> well, so it's from being sort of unembarrassedly in, in the in the present uh we can sort of look to slightly to the future and sort of so um what, what are you working on at the minute what's the what's the next sort of uh before we move on to the sort of the, the editorial sort of like i suppose slightly less than half of the show kind of like you to sort of like talk a little bit more about your own writing what's the current project um so i have a book coming out uh in a few months time if all goes well i'm about to get notes from my editor so always a bit <laughs> nerve-wracking um but yeah, I've just finished uh, my next manuscript, which is, it's a work of nature writing and sort of biography. Um, it's called Two Trees Make a Forest, a story of memory, migration, and Taiwan. And uh, it's about my grandparents and their journey from China to Taiwan onward to Canada and about landscape in Taiwan and sort of how you connect to these sort of in-between places, places that you inherit as a family my family you know my my mother was born in Taiwan but my grandparents were not um but the China that they grew up in was lost to them they they never were able to return after the revolution so how do you sort of make sense of home under those circumstances um and how do I as this sort of third generation from that um you know, I'm mixed race and I grew up in a completely different country and then I moved to another completely different country and then another completely different country. Like, how do I make sense of that heritage and of that history and mm. and get to know their lives and what they experienced? And for me, the language that I do that through is through landscape. Mm. Wonderful. I look forward to reading it. Um, so you're listening to Sweet 212 on, on Resonance 104.4 FM. Uh, I'm Tom Overton and I'm joined by Jessica J. Lee. Uh, I was going to read something from the front of the book, but I won't. Uh, <laughs> um, and we're talking about, 
all sorts of things, including Jessica's work uh, and landscape writing, nature writing, politics, the world, uh, and uh, now um, editorial projects that uh, Jessica was involved in. And uh, this week is a a big week for the uh, for the Willow Herb Review. Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, first of all, uh, what is the Willow Herb Review? So uh, the Willow Herb Review is it's a literary journal, ostensibly. We are just getting started. Um, how do I put it? It is the product of a great frustration that I had one day. <laughs> um, I wanted to create a space to platform uh, new and emerging and established writers of color writing about nature and environment because uh, to be honest, especially in British nature writing, they're few and far between. And so I, I created the space really just, I don't know, as a way of maybe holding the door open for other writers of, of mixed race backgrounds or of you know other writers who are people of color to come through and, and actually just have a space to, to do this kind of writing, to play with this kind of writing, to try something new. And also uh, perhaps as a bit of a statement to say that, you know, we need, we need more diverse nature writing. Mm. And so you put a call out uh, a few months ago, I think. Yeah, it was in so it was in June. I had the idea, um, and it was actually very rapid. I was on a train um, after leaving a talk that I gave in Germany, and I was I was delayed, and so my train was stopped, and I was sitting there, and I was looking through the um, the list for the Wainwright Prize, and I was thinking these are great books, but I still really just it it didn't quite sort of hit the spot for me because mm. I don't know they were I mean when you look at a a prize shortlist and it just they're all they're all white British authors or they're all writing about a specific kind of landscape as much as I loved these books I I felt like I didn't feel represented I didn't feel mm. like not me personally obviously but like I didn't feel like as a writer of color as someone with a migration background I didn't feel like that is something that is contained in that conversation mm. so I think I, I must have just tweeted something like oh maybe I should start a journal and I got a great response to that tweet and yeah. I thought oh gosh maybe I really do need to start a journal so I did and a week later I launched a crowdfunding campaign on Kickstarter and we were funded in two and a half days um, cool. so yeah and now we're we're ready to launch our first issue which will be sometime this week and we'll uh, we, we always uh, on the Sweet 212 Twitter, Twitter account we will tweet all of the, the links of the various things we'll talk about and we'll also tweet uh, the the, 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 the publish, publication of the journal when it, when it comes out probably Wednesday, Thursday Wednesday, maybe. Thursday depending on when my internet in my new flat is connected <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah so what what sort of uh, can you give us a sort of like a a, a, a a kind of rough outline of the sort of things you're publishing or? yeah I mean I'm really excited we've got nine writers from all around the world and that was the other thing I really I didn't want to say you have to be located in one particular place so the criteria was writing about nature in English by writers of colour anywhere in the world so we have a good number I would say half of the submissions were from British writers um, we've got a writer in Mexico a couple of writers in the US some Canadians um, and we've got I don't know just such exciting work we've had um, a good amount of poetry uh, and which I, I don't even think I could begin to sort of just explain I think it's very hard to explain poetry <laughs> um, but uh, the nonfiction we've got we've got writing about eel fishing in the Severn um, mm. and we've got writing about bird watching in South America and um, oh, let me think what else we've got writing about um, trees in the American South and racism and the sort of difficulty of places where you know um, there's a great line in one of the pieces that I, I can't stop thinking about about how a tree shouldn't be allowed to exist after it's ended someone's life. So it's about, you know, a town in which someone had been lynched. And mm. I, the, just really powerful writing about sort of nature and place. And some of it handles sort of racism and the issue of diversity very head on. Mm. And some of it doesn't. And I think that's exactly what I was hoping for. Mm. It was just this, this real range of, I think, very challenging nature writing that mm. I think is doing something a little different than what we're hearing in a lot of the very nostalgic and comfortable nature writing that gets published because in the uh on the, the website i can't remember if it's in the call out or not but you uh one of the texts you kind of you, you quoted from was uh catherine is it Bunny or bunny um catherine bruni yeah um a piece called towards uh, a wider view of nature writing which was published in the, the los angeles review of books in 2016 and kind of outlined some of these i mean there's, there were kind of two 
Well, yeah, let's talk about that one first. Um, outlined some of these sort of uh, issues you were talking about and sort of listed some of the work that had been done so far, uh, kind of trying to widen the the scope of, 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 of nature writing, I suppose. Uh, and and also the, the people who, um, the voices that, who I heard from. And I think there's, there's some interesting sort of text, and obviously we'll, we'll tweet that out too. Um, I think there's quite a nice line by Laura E. Savoy, who's a professor of environmental studies and geology at Mount Holyoke University, um, saying, imagine an environment broadly, not just as surroundings, not just in the air, water and land upon which we depend or that we pollute, not just as global warming, but as sets of circumstances, conditions and contexts in which we live and die, in which each of us is intimately part. Definition falls short without those experiences of place that are exiled or degraded, toxic or alien or migrant or urban or indentured. There is no requirement that a writer deal with any particular subject, yet it seems to me for the genre and those who call themselves environmental writers there, had be, there has been avoidance. The discourse has proceeded in a narrow frame with too few voices, perspectives and storied lives of, people's, of people not solely of Euro-American descent, experiences that transcend history and point to deeply embedded conflicts in this nation. That's um, such a powerful quote. Yeah, it's it's a good one, isn't it? Um, was, um, yeah, and also there was uh, there was some there's, there's some really interesting sort of um, work uh, mentioned in there actually. There's Caroline Finney as well, mm-hmm. uh, and I've not actually seen Ingrid Pollard's pastoral interlude, uh, which is photographs of kind of people of color in nature, which is kind of I mean something. I mean, I was I was struck by when you were talking about the Wainwright Prize. Is, is it is that named after Wayne, um, Wainwright the the beer <laughs> oh. i think it's no it's like it's one of those hybrid things that's um uh it's it has been sponsored by the beer company but oh, also right. is it's about english landscape so it's about you know um it obviously relates to wainwright as in like lake district and yeah, yeah. flat caps and yeah <laughs> exactly and what we were talking about earlier <laughs> no and i think it's a brilliant I, I think it's a brilliant prize and i i really do respect the work that has been acknowledged by it but i think for me you know there's there's one limitation of that prize which is that the writing has to be about about Britain mm. and I think there are a lot of people for whom our sense of nature and environment and home sort of transcends that border right mm. and I write about Britain but I also write about Germany I write about Canada I write about Taiwan mm. and I know there are other writers who very much feel similarly and to be able to write about so many places continuously I think is a really interesting challenge mm. for nature writing as a genre and so I, every time I I read new work where we have you know a writer taking us through so many different places, mm. I think that's very powerful because it's a great statement about who we are, sort of um, I think as a nation and yeah. also as you know as writers um, as a culture. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, and I think you know I think a lot about it because you know people always peg me as a Canadian writer. I was born in Canada. I'm, I'm British Canadian. I, mm. I hold two passports. I live in Europe, and. Um, I don't know. It's just that thing of like, how do we create spaces that allow that kind of subtlety of like the people who don't fit into tidy boxes, mm. right? And I think, yeah, it's it's sort of like biodiversity for for literature. Yeah, that's a nice that's a nice line, but also yeah, it, it, precisely. It's kind of, I think it's one of the other things that comes out in that that um, that Savoy uh, quotation I just read out that. Um, that turning more to thinking about the environmental rather than the specific and realizing that all of those different sort of landscapes are connected mm-hmm. by the you know by the same climate and uh, by the you know that that there is a very the reason that we experience change in those places is because of the interconnectedness of them rather than the isolation exactly and the, i think you know people with a migration history in particular are sometimes the best poised to teach us about those connections yeah um so yeah, I don't know. I think it's been really it's been really exciting to see the new work that we received as part of the journal. We received so much that I wish we could have published so much more than we are. Um, but I think, I mean, it was also just a great vote of confidence to say, I wish there was more diversity in nature writing and to open the call for submissions. And I, mm. I literally spent those months terrified that I had sort of imagined this need and that really, there, you know, these people didn't exist and that... I was just fabricating some need for diversity mm. and actually we got so many submissions and I would say more than half of the submissions came in with a little note saying thank you for creating this space I've been wanting something like this mm. for a long time and that meant a lot 
Fantastic. And, and the, the pl- this is just one of uh, an ongoing sort of, you know, this is this is just the, the beginning, right? Yes. So, yeah, it'll be the first issue out this week. Um, and so, yeah, we've got writing on swimming, writing on eels, writing on birds, writing on, oh, my gosh, so many things, um, which is really exciting. And then in January, we're opening submissions for a uh, sort of special collaboration we're doing as part of the People's Forest Project, which is part of the... Um, Waltham Forest London Borough of Culture 2019 mm. inaugural year of um, celebrating arts and culture in Waltham Forest mm. and so this is it's a rotating program that will uh, you know it's like a, a title that will be held by different boroughs over the coming years and um, so the project we have is to pick four writers to write about Epping Forest in response to each of the seasons when's the so has that call opened now uh, so we're accepting submissions from January 1st to March 15th Okay, excellent. We'll, 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 we'll post, post all Super. about that. Um, quite sort of key thing, especially given the, the conversation we're already having about etymology and, and language. Uh, why Willow Herb? Where's, what's the, the, what's the name? Um, so I, I mean, I, I think I have a strange obsession with Rose Bay Willow Herb, um, also known as bomb weed or fireweed. Mm. Um, I wrote a lot about it a fair bit in my PhD mm. um, because it is, I mean, it is an invasive species, um, as a lot of conservationists will tell you, but also it's this really sort of strong and quite vibrant weed to use. I, I mean, most people would say weed pejoratively. I say it in a sort of celebratory way mm. um, because it's, its seeds spread well with disturbance. So mm. famously, it was called bomb weed in London because when after the blitz so many sections of east london were bombed and really destroyed the rubble was taken and buried in other places um, among them Hampstead heath Mm. and so if you look back through sort of botanical records of the heath there's there are small traces of willow herb um sort of in the 18th and 19th centuries not not really so much and then after the 20th century, it's suddenly all over the heath because mm. so much of this rubble had been buried up there. And mm. um, it does really well in those circumstances. Wow. So it, it's all over now. And um, I I understand that some people are not so happy about this because it is it's the kind of thing that grows, you know, along railway ditches and that kind yeah. of stuff. Um, but I kind of love the idea of such a scrappy plant yeah. and of a plant that thrives with movement. That yeah. for me was sort of indicative of, of the energy I wanted to take for the willow herb as a journal. Uh, so that was why I named it after the plant. Yeah. It's kind of interesting that like for a, that it has like species that are considered as sort of um, I don't know native uh, and non-native. Yeah. I mean, our language for conservation has a lot of similar connotations. I think to how we think about migration and race. And yeah. I mean, you can't conflate the two. It, it would be wrong to conflate the two, but rather. I think it allows us to think very critically about how we think about borders, how we think about um, what divides us. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, actually, given because it, its name is actually quite you know for something I mean because of the language that is often used in, in the ways that you're describing is of, of invasive species and sort of thing, things like that. And but willow herb is actually a kind of it's it's quite a the positive sounding. It's so evocative actually yeah. as a name for a plant. Yeah, I really. Rose Bay Willow Herb. I don't know. Yeah. There's something about it that just sounds so beautiful to me. But also, I mean, it's a plant that's native to the country I come from. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I just found it so fascinating that people get very worked up about what Richard may be called plants out of place. Mm. And that's all a weed is, really, right? It's mm. a plant that's where it's not supposed to be growing. Yeah. And yeah, I think, uh, I mean, it's it's sort of a lazy comparison to compare it to race and migration, but I also think it's quite evocative, really. Mm. Um, so I wanted to play with that. It's, it's, it's a great name. It Thank kind you. of on that um, on that point, it kind of reminded me that one of the other sort of, I don't, I don't know if it was it played a sort of a, a role for you, but one of the other sort of recent texts uh, on some of these sorts of themes um, there was a piece by a guy called Richard Smythe um, earlier in the year in um, New Humanist magazine. Uh, uh, I think it was just called the dark side of nature writing, mm-hmm. um, and I, th- I think uh, from uh, maybe I imagine it had been something that because you know, it's something that lots of people have been thinking about for a while. But uh, sort of the spur for that um, 
at least as is presented in the essay, is the fact that in uh, in February, so the piece was published in June um, 2018, and in February 2018, there's a public poll uh, to choose the UK's favourite nature book, uh, and the second place went to um, Talk of the Otter, which is Henry Williamson's book from 1927, uh, and Williamson has, you know, was you know, was a Nazi. <laughs> he didn't didn't have sort of a no bending about leanings. that. He, he was straightforwardly a Nazi. He was a a, a sort of a in. Smythe's words, he was an adherent of Oswald Mosley's British Union fascists and called uh, uh, Hitler the great man across the Rhine, Um, which is, I suppose, it's kind of, we're kind of here looping and connecting London back to, well, the UK back to to Germany, I suppose. Um, And there's quite a nice, someone who, I think this is such a huge, huge uh, conversation and and someone we're hoping to have on the, the the show next year is a, a writer called Gary Budden who works at Influx Press, Press uh, and he has a sort of um, a nice line quoted by, by Smythe in that piece where he says, in the current political climate stuff that can seem harmless and a bit woolly can end up le- lending itself to some very dangerous narratives about belonging and national identity all too relevant in the Brexit era with the far right on the move again and being taken seriously in a way that would have seemed unthinkable 20 years ago. I saw you nodding there. Do you, do you know Gary's work? Yeah, or? yeah, and I know Gary. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, actually it's nice that you say that because I met Gary in Berlin oh, um, because he works with another author based in Berlin who writes about landscape. So they publish uh, Paul Scranton through uh, Influx yeah. as well. And so we've met. And I think, you know, the connections to, I don't know, just the political climate between sort of landscape writing and nature writing, environmental writing and the political climate right now, it's incredibly important um, and it's, you know, like I'm a British citizen. I'm, I'm a dual citizen, yes, but I'm a British citizen living in Europe right now. So the Brexit debate obviously mm. is something I'm following very closely because I don't want to have to leave my home. Um, and I think it's just been really interesting for me to see it from the perspective of, I you know, I, I felt very embedded in this culture of British nature writing to a certain extent. And then I moved to this place where actually you know all of this very real nazi history is there mm. as well as a very contemporary sort of neo-nazi movement mm. um and the countryside outside of berlin i i read it i i talked about it in the passage i read earlier is it's not unproblematic it's a wonderful place it's a beautiful place but it also is a place that i know people of color don't always feel safe mm. um and so it's something that I've really sort of puzzled over a lot as a nature writer and as a person who spends a lot of time going out into the woods on her own basically mm. Um, so I think, yeah, we cannot separate the current political climate and the current rhetoric from our thinking about landscape. I mean, borders are literally things we put in the landscape. So mm. what does that mean? Yeah. Right. Like it, they're not separate things. Um, and so often, I don't know, nature interacts with our borders in really profound ways. Um, yeah. So, I mean, in, in turning, I write a lot about the European green belt, which is yeah. um, this sort of area that was reclaimed uh, by birds and deer and and all sorts of plant species uh, because it was essentially an exclusion zone between uh, between the border between east and west Um, and it's now one of you know the great sort of conservation successes of of uh, the continent and I think these kinds of things should should raise questions for us um so in my next book i i've been writing about bird migration and a particular species of endangered spoonbill in taiwan that they spend um they spend their summers in the dmz Mm. in in korea and so this zone where humans create these borders and have these conflicts sometimes that's where nature thrives but also sometimes i think it is a great invitation for us to think about think about borders and to think about migration and what we mean when we talk about landscape and who belongs in a particular landscape yeah, there's a, the really kind of, for me, kind of like very evocative bit when you're talking about the uh, the, the area that used to be the that is now the green the green belt in Germany, which was which was the uh, this was the area between uh, che- posts uh, uh, that it was it's sort of raked sand, so you could see uh, the, foot, the footprints of people sort of trying to trying to escape over it, and there's now sort of yeah. I mean, it's not neutral, right? So when yeah. we talk about this kind of nature, this isn't neutral. It's incredibly laden with quite difficult histories, and there are histories. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's quite quite peculiar that uh, 
there's a lot going on with <laughs> with all the Brexit stuff, and when we turn our phones on at the end of this, God knows what will happen. I don't happen. even want to like, look. <laughs> <laughs> Although more positively, I think you. you just before you turn turns on, you'd seen a, a press release about a. There's a, a oh a yeah, actually, pullout. I just got a press release today. The Forestry Commission is launching a um, writers in residence program to commission two writers uh, to create work responding to Britain's forests, um, and they are looking specifically for work by writers from traditionally underrepresented backgrounds. So young writers, writers of color, etc. Um, so have a look for that. Um, yeah. I think it sounds exciting. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll tweet out the, the link to that uh, as as well. Um, you, but you, you currently have a, a, a writer ship in residency, whether kind of like a, yes yeah. at the at the uh, research uh, institute in Berlin. So I'm uh, I've been the writer in residence at the Leibniz Institute for Freshwater Ecology. So that's been a really interesting sort of collaboration, just from the standpoint of being a humanities person and a mm. historian and I'm just you know I come from a real arts background <laughs> uh, to be working with scientists and watching their work um, so the project I, I worked on with them which I produced a short BBC radio documentary out of um, was looking at Lake Stecklin mm. uh, which is about an hour north of Berlin and it's a lake that historically was viewed as um, a great sort of mirror for wider disasters in the world so there's a great sort of myth that the lake would erupt in geysers whenever there was a disaster elsewhere <laughs> in the world. And so um, I just, I kind of loved that story from a, a sort of myth-making standpoint. And as it so happens, there's now one of the world's largest freshwater research stations on that lake where they study climate change. Oh, okay. So I thought, you know, the idea of this sort of slowly unfolding disaster being mirrored in this lake uh, is a really powerful reflection also of that myth. So is the sort of the, is that an ongoing I've just I've just wrapped it up Um, and yeah so basically I mean I'm still working with a lot of the scientists there on ways to tell stories about sort of freshwater science and culture Um, but yeah it's uh, uh, it was a really interesting experience to get in and just to see how the scientists work and I would go in and and I would even work out on the lab some days with them it's this great floating (laughs) laboratory and so I would sometimes go and work with the technicians there putting up fish fences and generally you know, keeping busy um, as a way of really getting in touch with the work that takes place in this kind of lab, and you know what it, what it really means to sci- to do this kind of scientific research. You know, there's mm. a lot of maintenance involved. Yeah. So it was interesting as a writer to spend some time doing that, and to yeah, to really see how climate change research takes place. Yeah. Is the so the documentary, the radio documentary, has already happened? Uh, yeah, it was last oh, last spring. It was on an episode of BBC Shortcuts. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you know if that's still available? It's on it? iPlayer, and ah. the episode is called Unearthly. There we go. We'll dig it up for you. Uh, but the thing that's ongoing is the uh, the alliance. You're still working with the Alliance for Freshwater Life, right? Yeah, yeah. And so that's a project um, working with mo- a lot of the same scientists, but also with uh, conservationists and uh, researchers and artists from all around the world uh, with the hopes of, I think, just putting freshwater life and freshwater biodiversity on the map for, um, you know, from an international perspective. I think a lot of us understand to a certain extent what's happening with climate change. A lot of us really, I think, have gotten on board with the narratives around microplastics, around even just wildlife on the whole. There was the People's Walk for Wildlife here in London a few Mm. months ago. People are starting to really think about biodiversity. One of the things that people forget is freshwater biodiversity. Mm. It's not as perhaps charismatic as you know um as sea life as Mm. as, you know marine life um you know we're often talking about the things that live in in wetlands in Mm. in lakes in rivers it's it's not really what most people think of first you know Mm. we're talking about amphibious life we're talking about freshwater fish about algae and and microbes that live in freshwater but all of these are so vital to the conservation story and freshwaters are actually um from a biodiversity standpoint suffering the worst out of basically all kinds of species. So I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but the number is something like 80% down um, on species uh, populations in freshwater species, which, uh, in, and that's just in the past sort of three or four decades. Oh, wow. That should terrify us. Yeah. 80% is a big number. Um, uh, so yeah, I've been working with these scientists to think about how we can tell these stories about, about freshwaters because... You know, so much of the problem I think about environmental disasters is, is just about uh, you know connecting to the public and storytelling. Yeah. So, yeah. 
It's like a kind of final thing on that. What's the freshwater life in Hampstead? They're just sort of trying to loop around to the beginning. Yeah. Like the freshwater life in Hampstead. In the ponds. Yeah. Uh, well, they're a pike, and I guess they oh, wow. regularly need to be fished out from the ponds so they don't nibble the toes of the swimmers. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least they're there to be fished out. Yes. Um, but yeah, lots of bird life. It's beautiful. <laughs> okay. um, thank you so much, Jessica. Um, as I said, we'll, we'll tweet out all of the links to everything we, we talked about and, uh, and, and anticipate and look forward to your next book. Uh, I've been Tom Oven uh, here on Sweet 212 on Resonance 104.4 FM. Next week, uh, I'm back actually with Juliet. We're going to do a kind of uh, Sweet 212 roundup of uh, everything we've enjoyed this year, be it books, uh, films, TV, uh, exhibitions, anything, probably things that don't fit into any, any of the categories. And then we'll be off uh, for Christmas and back in January. Thanks very much for listening and Happy New Year. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.